You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Own the Build podcast with me. Hemming. In the studio today, we have Dale Sinclair, who is Head of Digital Innovation at WSP, one of the world's leading engineering and professional services firm, who I probably don't need to introduce. You guys probably know who they are. I'm delighted to have Dale on the show today. He follows in the illustrious steps of his colleagues, Diego Padilla Phillips, with whom we did episode 89, and Tim Danson, who was here three weeks ago, and we did episode 105. Dale, I'm delighted to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks, and thanks for inviting me on. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, Dale. I mean, keen listeners to the show know I love an accent, and I'm a big fan of your accent. Talk to me about it. Well, yeah, I was, I was brought up in Edinburgh. I studied at the Macintosh, so so yeah, uh, but I've obviously been down south for, for a while now. It's probably softened my accent a little bit, but yeah, it's uh, it's still yeah. going strong. So, would your friends back home say you've got a soft southern accent uh, now? They probably would, actually. <laughs> Although, I guess most people down south here would say, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. gonna say, I was gonna say, but I won't. Um, and you're just back from a trip in Saudi Arabia, Jeddah, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we were, we were in Jeddah a few weeks ago. Uh, we're we're seeing a lot of projects in the, the Middle East just now because the obviously they're they're trying to do lots of different things, uh, and uh, so it's really exciting to be doing a mixture of UK and and Middle East contracts right now, where, where most of my team are working on. Epic. And are you anything to do with the Mirror Line in Saudi Arabia? Even if I was, I wouldn't be able to say. <laughs> <laughs> that is some project, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it is, it is. It is an amazing project, and uh, I think look, I think these projects are great because uh, I do believe that uh, a lot of what I see is what I call optimized traditional. Where, uh, and and I think one of the reasons we're not getting the the level of transformation that we need as an industry is that we're we're trying to just make what we've done for hundreds of years better. And and I think projects like that are I, I think are great because they begin to me to to get that there will be a paradigm shift by this end of this decade, and I'm absolutely sure we'll be talking about that subject in in depth and, and during our, our conversation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So fascinating. So talk to me about your career, your experience, and kind of what you do now, just to ground the conversation. Yeah, so obviously I qualified as an architect. Uh, I had 17 years at BDP and uh, I had a fantastic career there building lots of really different buildings uh, from commercial office buildings to hospitals to uh, shopping centres. So it was a real opportunity to see how different sectors work. But uh, the main thing was really having a, a brilliant opportunity to just be on site lots and really get the whole ethos of how you build buildings. I was then in my own practice for 10, 12 years uh, and then went to ACOM for eight years and I've been at WSP for just over a year. So, and over my career, I've always been really interested in the process of how we 
design buildings and uh, you know I published a number of books on design managements I, I was obviously heavily involved in the development of the the current RIB plan of work and uh, what's really exciting uh, for me right now is that we're a lot of the projects that we're doing we're not just doing new content we're actually having to re-engineer the whole process of how we design buildings and the reason for that is that we're we're moving everything into the factory we're trying to not take thousands of small things to to sites but lots of bigger things so so what an example a project i'm doing just now we would normally be taking five thousand small things from uh, plasterboard sheets to bits of steelwork to a site and we've now got that down to 60 parts so so the analogy with Lego always works really well and, and you can imagine if I'm taking 60 parts to site then the erection's much quicker it's taking less than a month instead of a, a six months and and I think all that's all part of the change so yeah re it's really exciting to have those sort of projects uh, on our uh, proverbial drawing boards right now yeah yeah I can imagine and it's not just the um install is it it's actually the design the manufacture the whole process is that much better and the operation and the maintenance i'm guessing is a whole lot easier and to be honest with you you've given me this i love this when my guests do this you've you've segued me instantly into the topic that i wanted to talk to you about or that we're we're here to talk about so we're here to talk about how a kit of parts will impact construction in the future and how mentalities will shift you just talked about five thousand parts going down to was it 60 which is in insane and you know we've all been on building sites where you've got endless fixtures fittings units panels it's never ending isn't it so I, I do want to talk today very specifically about the term kit of parts and its relevance to us as a sector so again grounding the conversation kit of parts could mean many different things well it couldn't but you know it's not necessarily construction specific is where my mind goes when I hear that phrase. So what do you mean by first the term kit of parts? First of all, and I think importantly, is the our kit of a parts approach plays to the whole government kind of platform approach. So we, we hear everyone talking about platforms. I guess we tend to like kits of parts because within a platform approach, it's, people seem to just resonate with that term a bit better because they, they know what a Lego kit is and then you, they can start to see that instead of having lots of those small bits, we've got bigger pieces, i.e. the kit of parts. So, and the other term that we would tend to work in conjunction with kits of parts is catalogs. So what we're trying to create is these larger sub-assemblies or parts or components that can be put into a catalogue and, and of course, the other piece of the, the jigsaw is that they're all reusable. And I think the big trend into the future is just now, uh, especially for buildings, is, you know, people have been saying for years, well, you know, every building is a prototype. And that's absolutely true. But the reason for that is that that's construction enables that because we can design a different appearance uh, uh, on, on different sites. So, and it actually works really well with the challenges of having to take things to a site that might have different typography, different uh, planning requirements and so on and so forth. And that's always worked quite well. Uh, but I think the thing about the kit of parts is if you can create the elements, especially things you don't see. And it's, I hear more and more people talking about that. If the kit of parts is about not, I mean, it's not about trying to create cookie cutter architecture. It's, it's about trying to get 
bigger things that can then come to sight, and especially things you don't see, like the structure, just looking at how that comes to work together in a different way. And um, and it's all about trying to drive carbon out of the process. And, and, and I think this is where the biggest challenge is, is there's 90 billion of construction per year in the UK and something like three trillion small across amount. the world. Yeah, small amount. And and as you, as you can imagine, we're not going to get that level of construction into a factory overnight. It's going to be a long and slow process. So, so first of all, if we acknowledge it's a long and slow process that has to be done in small steps, we, we can certainly see the benefits. And from where I sit, the benefits of off-site manufacturing are, uh, well, there's huge benefits from it, it's safer to do, it creates a better environment for people to, to make things. We can drive out waste, so there's you know, it, it creates less carbon. Uh, we can use different kind of labor, so we can bring new skills into the industry and so on and so forth. And the only thing that, that we see that is impeding more off-site manufacturing is cost. And, and I think the big thing is if we could actually bubble that up to the surface and try and get a conversation. Well, how do we make offset manufacturing cheaper? And for us, that's where the program comes in because economies of scale is quite a simple concept. The the volume goes up and the cost comes down. So, yeah. I was going to say, it's yeah, time, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, well, we've, we've got the time benefit if the contractors can spend less time on site, then obviously we get reduced prelims and all the benefits of that. So, so yeah, it, it's it's really trying to address the cost element, and and for us, that's where the kit of parts at a platform level really starts to resonate. And if if we can keep repeating, then we'll we'll get those results. Can I draw you back to what you just said about you just you've mentioned the word platform twice, and you mentioned the government's framework for platforms. Could you just talk to me specifically what you mean there? Because I don't think that will resonate necessarily with the listeners. All of the listeners. The the government updated its construction playbook last year, and a big part of that is is developing platform approaches. and And there's a separate uh, platform playbook that's also just been uh, issued as well. So obviously, the, the, these are now quite uh, commonly referenced and shared documents. So I suppose the important thing is to say that what we're doing is is all part of that. It's not something separate concept that we're trying to spin up. It's very much part of. Uh, of what the the government's trying to do uh, around offsite manufacturing. Okay, understood. So I, I knew that you had the construction playbook. I didn't know there'd been this update for platforms specifically and and on this topic. Okay, that's that's really interesting. So understood. Could you then talk to me about you started to touch on it there because offsite construction kit of parts. It's one of the things that kind of jumps out to you initially as as an instinct of it is that cookie cutter uh, mentality you know are we going to have all these projects exactly the same architecturally obviously not but you know that's you think how are you going to approach it so that you still have architecturally beautiful architecturally modern fresh designs could you talk about particularly from the context of an architect kit of parts how that impacts architecture and then construction yeah, so, I mean, my own view is, uh, well, first of all, is making things as different to construction. And even if I take a simple thing like a toilet, if I look at the this from a... You want an architecturally pleasing toilet? Yeah, we, we always want toilets to be good and we always want them to be using... <laughs> uh, well, we're changing materials to reduce carbon, so that's actually changing the design of toilets. Circular economy is changing how we can replace elements and improve maintenance and so on. 
But I think the big thing is if you look at the mathematics of designing a toilet, as an architect, I can go and pick probably 20 different sinks, uh, 20 different baths, 20 different taps. Well, probably more than that, actually. And when you actually crunch the, the numbers, that, that creates infinitesimal number of permutations. And I, I think one of the reasons that we have so many challenges on site is that level of interface management is just impossible to manage. Because, And then when an architect picks sink X and matches it to tap Y, actually maybe those two things don't come together, which is why we get lots of challenges. So if we start to bubble down uh, the numbers that we can choose, I think the same way, look, musicians only have seven notes, but for hundreds of years, they've been able to come up with new music every single day, right? And and I think just, and there's a great book about managing choice, which uh, I think is brilliant. I can't remember who the author is, but uh, I mean, that really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, sometimes having too much choice is, is, is a bad thing. And certainly if-, if No one likes to go to a restaurant and see- 10 pages of choice do you the best restaurants have a select few and you pick them and they are high quality right exactly and, and well the example in this book is that there's an american supermarket that only has three choices of chili sauce right and partly they sell uh, twice as much uh, chili sauce as other supermarkets that have say 15 brands and it, it's it's a brilliant example that you know when you when you have a focused choice you you can actually make better choice and I know architects would like to constantly looking at different things, but consumers at the end of the day, uh, to, to what extent does someone moving into a house really think about the difference? How between... many different versions of toilet yeah. do you really need? I think, exactly. can I ask, and again, so my, I'm a QS, you're an architect. Let's, let's keep this friendly. But my perception of BIM, having been in the industry for 15 years now, 16, 17 years, is that, one of its main challenges has been exactly what you have just described, right? In that for something as simple as a toilet, you can end up with a million permutations of fixtures, fittings, ceramic, whatever. And therefore, one of the key USPs, if you like, of BIM, in my mind at least, is like the fact that you can standardize things. You can kind of, it's almost like a kit of parts, theoretically. You can say, right, this replaces that in the model, etc., is the fact that the industry has not had that approach, you've had a, multi, a million outcomes for a toilet, as our example, one of the things that you think has held BIM back and could the kit of parts change that? I think BIM uh, works two ways. I think if we modelled everything in a much more granular way, we still find that a lot of the objects that we get from suppliers don't have the, the right level of modelling, they don't have materials kind of mapped to them and so on and so forth. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot that we could do to enable even traditional construction through BIM to make it better. But what we're doing is the first thing that we're doing is that we're modeling. There's just one team that model. Let's say we're doing a toilet pod. There isn't a structures team, an MEP team and an architectural How team. How did we end up on yeah. toilets? Of all oh. the things to pick, Dale, we're talking about toilets. <laughs> but go on, yeah. go on. Well, it, I think it is a good example because actually, you know, we've, we've been doing toilet pods for 20 years. And you've got to say, well, wait a minute. Why, why, do, why is there still probably 100 part free students in the UK drawing a, a disabled toilet today i mean we should just go to a catalog and pick it i mean i think it's yeah it's a strange topic to choose in some respects but it's it is a really pertinent one yeah but what we're doing work clients is first of all we're modeling things uh, multidisciplinary so that we've got one thing there 
Two is we're modeling more to a manufacturing level of detail. So that way we get all of the pipe work and the, the, the conduit and so on into our elements. And then we can then look at, well, we can work with the client. So what you don't see is modeled, it's like pre-engineered, if you like, to a higher level of detail. And then what you do see, we can sit down with a client and say, okay, what options do you want your customers to have? And so we're actually going, so a tra our, traditionally an architect would model for one set of information to go to site. But we're seeing the trend that some clients want to offer their their customers, so you know the people that are purchasing things to make choice further downstream. So, in a sense, we're we're managing choice to allow clients to have program level content, but that choice is also managed for their customers to also have choice further downstream. So it's quite an exciting change in in how we use BIM, if you like, to for clients to make choice and then for them to give their clients choice. Fantastic. And so do you think that it's a positive thing for BIM? I guess it can only help to take it forward, right? Exactly. And and I think that for me, one of the main reasons that, that BIM has not been successful is we still play into traditional design processes. And that's why I'll, I'll come back to my favorite term right now. A paradigm shift gets driven when you when you change everything. If if you keep playing into traditional things, way, ways of doing things, then uh, you you don't get that shift. And and I know um, Elon Musk is on the the you know a lot of people's naughty step just now, but uh, <laughs> but but he certainly has changed Not the on industry. Yours. Well, that's probably for another conversation. But I think uh, <laughs> I think what he has done is he has driven change that has as as now pushing the car industry to a paradigm shift. We're moving away from petrol and diesel engines into EVs. So 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 I guess that's where I'm coming from. He's taken an industry and and forced it because he's looked and beyond flipped it. Yeah. And, it and even down to his sales process, everything is is looking at things in a different way. And that's certainly where I see maximum change happens when you you almost like start with the process on a blank piece of paper. People say to me all the time, but yeah, yeah, we, we, we tried that 20 years ago, Dale, and it didn't work. Well, the difference today is that we're, we're monitoring 100 different technologies right now. And the difference today is we can pretty much do what we want because there, there's so many technologies we can use. And of course, there is an urgency to 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 make that change anyway because we're trying to drive towards net zero and all the uh, things that I'm sure Diego spoke about when you were, when you spoke to him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to hear people as well say, we've tried that, can't do it because people don't like changes. But okay, I mean, I've asked a couple of questions here that I intended to and we've spun off in a really fascinating way. So I'm really pleased by that. Right after the break, we're going to jump into some of the more detail. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded C-Link with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, 
www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So that was really interesting as a foundation in kit of parts. One of the things that you touched on there was Elon Musk and actually what he did to other to a completely separate sector, the car industry, manufacturing almost as well. Is there any other sectors where the kit of parts approach is working and we are learning from them? I think there's there's lots of different sectors that we can learn from, but I think the in terms of what we're doing, I think the biggest learning is for example looking at system thinking. So just to bring another new concept in, so we're seeing the design of buildings becoming way more complex than it has been in the past because we're driving these new systems into buildings around net zero. So whether it's ground source heat pumps, air source heat pumps, we're not used to coordinating all these systems. And of course, when systems come together in different ways, you create all these new interfaces and so on. And we believe that we're at the end of what you would call an intuitive way of designing things. So architects and engineers design just from the knowledge that resides in their mind. And I, having been the lead designer in recent years on some major projects, I think it's becoming really difficult to do that because we're having to build all these new knowledge sets to design in the future. So I think it's an appropriate time for us as an industry to start to look at what other uh, industries are doing. So, for example, uh, I've been doing a bit of reading recently on system thinking and uh, even looking at the role that anthropology pay, plays in changing the design process. And firms like IDEO, for example, have been doing that for decades, you know, at the front end, really analyzing and studying their customers. And, and you know, they get a brief from the client and say, well, yeah, yeah, thanks very much for that brief, but we'd rather just study and see, you know, how this might work. So so I, th- I think now is the time for us to actually look at all of these concepts, if you like, about how we design and, and then how do we play that into a manufacturing process? And and all of that, I just find incredibly exciting. And I do tend to work on a, on a combination of structured, uh, let's say, reading that I do and, and a little bit of serendipity. Because there is so much out there, there it never does. No, so I might read the Harvard Business Review one day and then be reading some book on some seemingly unrelated topic. But I, I've I've read a lot recently and inspire something yeah, in your mind exactly. And and usually when I read a book, I start this and I think, why am I reading this book again? And then at the end of it, I was even if I get two or three ideas, I'm like, wow, that that actually was a really good read. It seemed a bit off piece, but but actually it, it's it's put a new another idea into my head that we can look into. You've talked there about in terms of the role of the architect, it's going to change. We have talked on this podcast endlessly at times about how quantity surveying would evolve how all of these roles structural engineer architect all the consultants it is going to evolve considering kit of parts surely that is that it's going to remove a quite a a lot of human process right you talked about the difference between 5,000 bits of materials coming to site versus 60. now if I think about it as a QS, but it's exactly the same for an architect. As a QS, 
those 5,000 bits and pieces of materials require takeoff, they require valuation, they require payment. All things which run through the heart of what a quantity surveyor currently does. Similarly, architect, design team, right? How do you see the kit of parts approach impacting human roles? Well, it, it will definitely change things. I don't, I don't think it reduces the, the demand for the current professionals that are out there because I think it frees us up. So I, I think taking away like the necessity to do documentation like drawings and so on or specifications or quantities, I mean, if it's data-driven, and I think we're just beginning to see the shift away from uh, kind of relational databases into graph databases, which is going to drive a whole new kind of data thing, and of course, AI and so on and so forth. And of course, chat GPT, it's one of the big topics of today. I mean, we could probably get sucked into that if we're not careful. But what I think we will see is a lot of automation of these things that don't add value to the process anyway, right? Uh, Without a doubt. And I think to me, there's there's too much emphasis sometimes on the automation part of what we do, because what we should be focusing on is where does the human add value in, in the process that we do? Uh, let's not call it a design process. Let's just call it a project process, the process of building multiple buildings. Doing a bill of quantities is of low value, isn't it? That should be done for you. And then as a QS or whoever, you have that exact data. And what do you then do with it is what you way drive value and it, that is the powerful thing not the process of we need someone to do it what i've never understood why particularly in the context of bim i'll talk about my career lifespan if you like so i came into in 2007 2006 2007 bim had been around for 10 years then we were told at university it's going to rock the world it's going to change the world and from my experience i've worked on some pretty big projects it's had an impact but industry-wide it hasn't like really impacted everyone which are definitely not SMEs and I've always thought like BOQ for, for QS having the having the measure should that gives you absolute certainty and clarity on everything and allows you to do all kinds of things and the fact that it's done by QS not a computer I always I think right now in today's modern technology is absolutely ridiculous. No I, I agree there, there's I mean I guess one of the visions we have is data should be at your fingertips at all time. And even some of the things that we do, like say doing a CFD study, it can take two or three weeks for that data to come back. Now say that's in relation to the design of a facade system. Well, how how can you design a facade if you can only get feedback every three weeks on whether that's achieving better U values and reduce carbon and so on. So I think what we want to have at our fingertips is all all this live data and and, and go back to the point, if we take the waste out, I think what we can now do as an industry is spend less time on the single project and go back to the program approach and looking at how we can do programs together. So again, driving down costs because we're looking at how we can do kits of parts across multiple you know, clients even. Maybe clients will share their kit of parts because they can see the value of driving up the quantities to reduce the cost. And But I think the more important thing is around, I think, new materials because anything that sequestrates obviously has got huge carbon benefits. So I certainly think there'll be a lot of research in the future about materials. We we obviously need to be really careful there because we've had some uh, materials in the past like asbestos and so on that, you know, obviously 
were used for very good reasons, but have then created significant health and safety issues. So, so you know, we need to think very carefully about uh, deploying materials at scale. And, and so I think there's a whole piece around materials that we want to look at. But, but yeah, driving more and more carbon out of our buildings, thinking about what does a circular economy approach mean to kit parts? How do I come back and replace that part? Uh, these are all topics that we, if we, if we can get the waste, we can really spend time trying to think more about how to solve those. It's interesting that you touched on the circular economy there because three weeks ago we sit down with your colleague Tim and we talk about the circular economy. Fascinating stuff. Three weeks on, you're quite insightfully, quite innovatively talking about a paradigm shift. Forget what we've always done. We're going to do something completely different, which I I love and I admire. I, I personally kind of agree with you. We've got to got to de-shackle and move forward. It strikes me, interested to get your thoughts on this, that with a kit of parts, the circular economy, in construction at least, perhaps becomes a lot less relevant. I know we've got all of this existing stock and all the endless existing stock where perhaps the circular economy becomes far more relevant. But for new projects moving forward, if you're working with a kit of parts, surely the volume of waste and in inverted commas or that the circularity there, the whole point of it is to drop the circularity because it gives you absolute certainty on what you're using and you're using less. No, this, uh, this is a really good point. And, uh, and I think the main piece here is that you're absolutely right. We're, I mean, we're already seeing the planners now starting to res- resist the demolition of buildings. Certainly our experience is that embodied carbon, two thirds of that comes from the substructure uh, foundations and, and, and the frame of a building. And so we will see in the future less buildings being demolished. And what that probably means is that DFRMA, you know, for refurbishment will be the future. So if we're coming in and replacing buildings. So for me, things like an adaptive core, if I'm going to, let's say, take this building that was a hospital and turn it into residential in 30 years time, I'm not going to demolish the frame, but I maybe need to adapt the core for different lifts and different risers. I can just unplug the facade. I want to plug in new toilets. But so I, I think the kit of parts for back to for, toilets. You, yeah. I knew you'd get us back there in this second half. It had been at least ten minutes without toilet chat, so I'm glad we're back on. Yeah, it. so it's inevitable. But listen, every building has a toilet, so it's you know you you can't get away from it. An air an airport, yeah, a factory, hospital. So so yeah, I mean we we did we did a, some kinematics recently for robots, and guess what we chose as the topic? Uh, Let me have a guess. Toilets, of course. Yeah, and and the reason for that was because you know every building has toilets, so therefore everyone it, it, understands the toilet yeah, as well, don't they? Yeah, 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 exactly. And and of course the other thing about uh, toilets, and uh, it's a shame we're getting sucked into this so deep. But anyway, uh, <laughs> is that there, there is a complexity there. Because for me, one of the conditions for moving things off-site is, is complexity. And and set of toilets, it's got plumbing, it's got different, you know, even with an MEP, it's got electrics, it's got plumbing, uh, it's got mechanical. Uh, so it, it has a lot of disciplines in there and, and, and it's inherent complexity. I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm rethinking the title of this episode. It was going to be something about how will a kit of parts impact construction, but it's got to be toilet. Toilets. Yeah. Now, it's all about yeah, to- the toilet. Toilets <laughs> is a driver for change. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So kind of coming towards the end of the episode here, but I want to go back to what you were talking about in regards to paradigm shift. 
I forget your exact quote. Remind me of the exact quote. Well, a paradigm shift is really where we, we, we are doing something so different that it doesn't feel like what we used to do. And uh, and like I say, the, most of what I see is what I call optimizing traditional. And even BIM, we're, we're just, we're optimizing, we're doing some great digital things around BIM, but we're playing it into very traditional processes for procurement, for planning and all that. And, and a paradigm shift is where everything changes, the whole ecosystem changes. Understood. And what would you, what is the single thing, if you could change construction now, you know, you talked about blank canvas, start again from scratch. How would you, what is the paradigm shift, the one thing that you would think would drive that paradigm shift the most? Well, we, we had a we had some... Get rid of QSs <laughs> or no, more toilets. No, no. Well, cost, as I say, cost is a big part of the, the change process. But I think, well, first of all, is get, trying to get people to move away from the single project process. Without a doubt, that, that is the... Now, what, what's the main barrier to that? Well, recently we had lots of discussions with clients about, you know, well, BIM and so on. And most clients will tell you that the biggest challenge they have, certainly in the UK, is the planning process. So I, I think to drive the paradigm shift, I think the, the biggest piece of the jigsaw is trying to look at well, how do we get the planning process to engage with kit of parts? Because imagine if I could design a building and make it still look unique, back to the fact that I'm I'm like a musician. I'm go- I want to create something unique. It's not a cookie cutter. So I'm maybe playing around with different parts, maybe even creating a new facade piece for my kit of parts to get my planning consent. Well, how do we get that through the planning process much, more, much quicker? Because if I can go through... I think that yeah, will... That will resonate with a lot of our listeners for sure. I'm just thinking about a company like IKEA, right? And I'd be interested. I don't know if this is relevant at all, but you know, in terms of kit of parts and the way that the way that IKEA works, I'm sure that they use a lot of identical fixings, right? They almost have a kit of parts approach, but then all the furniture looks slightly different. Is there anything? Is there any inspiration that we're taking from companies like that or situations like that? Going back to the planning point, if if planning was so easy to resolve, then we would buy our, our houses just the same way we... Well, we can buy IKEA kitchens today. I can design a kitchen on the IKEA kind of configurator and I can order it, pay for it and go and pick it up tomorrow. And then Sunday I can be I could have my screwdriver out, be, be building it. It would be the same for whole houses if we could get over the planning process. Now, I know IKEA and others are, are doing that because they're now going into planning authorities and saying, look, your area has a, a demand for housing. What do we need to do to get pre-agreed plans and elevations and all that so that we, we can then... So, so I, think, I think these things are happening and uh, there may be some of them behind the surface, but you're, you're on the right wavelength and it's like i think that's what it's about trying to get yeah it's i think it's about trying to again go back it's going into the planners and saying at program level look we want to make all our houses off-site we want them but at the same time we want the customer to configure each one can we agree a design that is going to be acceptable to you so that we can get all of these made in the factory so we can deliver them faster and so on and so forth so so we are seeing these engagements happening and Maybe not for, and, and I guess the, some architects might say to me, yeah, but every building should be different. Well, yeah, maybe a concert hall or maybe something like that. But I've, I think there's lots of building types that we can still 
like we, I think we could still design schools as a platform, but allow each school to have its own identity for its own region. So the interior kit of parts might be separate from the kit of parts used to, to do the elevations because one school might be in, let's say, a conservation area and, and another school might be in, you know, a greenfield site or whatever. But all jokes aside, without yeah. bringing it back to toilets, but you have thousands of schools across the UK. Why aren't all the toilets the same in every school? Like, who cares? Like, there's there's so many things. And, like, the, the, the things in the background and even the fixtures and the fittings, why can they not all be the same? I'm, I honestly think if you took a step back and looked at how construction has evolved, it makes total sense how it has evolved. But you would look at it now and say, that's ridiculous how you've built all of those schools. Why have you got 10,000 schools, 10,000 bespoke designed individual schools it's illogical for the government as the client to have built like that but that is how we've kind of built right yeah but that's ju- i think that's just because it's been too hard to do it and now we can actually do that and i think my one caveat to that is yes we well, i don't see why schools shouldn't all have the same toilets that have been designed back to my point through observation and anthropology with a great designer working alongside to to figure out how do we make these look fantastic and 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 so you know it's, it's so it's good design really comes into this and it's balancing good design with cost and yes looking at how the outside of a school might look different because that's that's its context but but i don't see any reason why we shouldn't have all of the schools having the same interiors the same classrooms once we've figured out what the optimal way of delivering better education outcomes is yeah, no, I completely agree with you, and that makes total sense. And on that note, um, that positive note, I think we are at the end of the show. I will obviously be sharing Dale's details in the description along with WSPs. And Dale, thank you for coming on the show with your delightful Edinburgh accent, and I think that was an amazing episode. I'm really pleased to have chatted to you about it. I've learned a lot. Great. No, and I really enjoyed the conversation, so thanks for the invite. And everybody, I will be back next week wishing you a good weekend thank you very much take it easy